Hello and welcome to a very special commentary track. My name is Joe Lynch, I'm a filmmaker, and next to me is the filmmaker that made me want to be a filmmaker, Mr. Tom Holland, who is the writer of the film that you are about to see, Cloak and Dagger. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Welcome to your own house. Yes, yes. Hello, everybody as, out there. As we are watching uh, the newly uh, transferred version, actually, we're watching an older version. The, the version that you're watching right now is going to look so much better. Um, but we are watching Cloak and Dagger, which was a fixture for me, not just as an avid HBO watcher, but as a huge gamer. This was one of the first movies that like appealed to me as a gamer. You know, I, I had my Atari 2600. Uh, you know, and when, when you heard about, like, there's a movie about video games, mm -hmm. you flocked to it, you know. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, my parents didn't flock to it at the theaters. They just went like, oh, there's something on at 3 o'clock that has movies in it, and it's got the guy from 9 to 5 in it. You're going to love it. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to just jump right in. This opening scene here, which is essentially, for all intents and purposes, this we are now in the video game world. That's right. So there are video game physics, uh, which you will see later with the rolling die. Um, I mean, it, it, it's more, if anything, it's more of like a D&D &D scenario, you know. Were you a gamer when, when you were kind no, of but doing ga this? No, but games were... Games were just coming in. Mm -hmm. You had you had the you know you had the stores where you'd go in and play the games, Tetris and you know and and and, and, and rocket ships or whatever, try yep. to blend all those things. And then they started to come out with uh, Atari. Yeah. And I think Atari did a game of Cloak and Dagger. Actually, it was what was it? Um, Agent X was the original version of the game, and then I guess. Brian May as the composer. Holy mm. shit, man. This The pedigree in this movie. Mm -hmm. I think people are going to, if you've never seen this movie before, as these credits wash over you, you're going to realize like there was a lot of really great people involved in this Who movie. Who worked on it, yeah. And this came on the heels of Psycho 2, correct? That's right. So to, to know that, like, I don't necessarily under, like wonder if the Universal execs went like, we need to make a kid's movie about video games. Get me the team behind Psycho 2. No, this this was a beat before they started doing PG or PG-13. Yeah. This was a beat before kids' movies became a staple. Yeah. And, and kids' movies like the Amblin films that everyone kind of says, you know, is so tantamount to the 80s. But when you watch this film, you have kids shooting guns. You have... Kids in peril. You couldn't get away with what we did. Half, couldn't, half couldn't do of the it shit, now. like, because I, I know that there was, um, you know, discussion of like remakes, and this movie could totally be remade today. But you would never be able to get away with some of the stuff that Henry gets away with in this movie, or even like what you and Richard were able to pull off. No, you, there's, you know, there's, there's there are lines with the bad guys threatening the kid that you couldn't do today. My memory is the only thing you couldn't do then was put a gun up against a kid's head. Which is funny because I just watched an episode of the show Them on Amazon, and there is a scene with a kid with a gun to his to her head, and it's I mean in these, this day and age it, it got me like really messed up, and in here there are kids being held off of cliffs, <laughs> there are, you know there's egregious gunplay with kids involved, um, but how did you and Richard get involved with this? Did you guys go in as a team, or was this something where like they maybe approached you first with the story, and then Richard came along after? My, I, you know, I don't remember. I think we went in as a team because we were coming off of the huge success of Psycho Two, the, uh, and this is supposedly a, a a remake of The Window. The Window was the juvenile version of Coronel Woolrich's uh, Rear Window, mm -hmm. and. Uh, 
we, and I, I looked at that and I said, well, we can't do the window. It's just, it's the boy who cried wolf. Mm-hmm. And there's not enough that's, that's, that's there that's, uh, that's you know, going to keep, you know, an audience. Well, it's, it's funny, too, because I, even as a kid, I remember thinking, this feels like Hitchcock for kids. You know, like this yeah. feels like almost like a primer for kids to understand. Oh, okay. I have to ask this. So, screen story and screenplay by Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, what is the difference between the two? That means it's an original screenplay, but since they supposedly based it on a book, they divided it up. And since it didn't have anything to do with 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 the with the, with the supposed source material, mm-hmm. they gave me screen story credit. I have uh, what they call uh, separated characters. So all the oh, characters are created God. by me, but that was a way for Universal to keep control of it. Do you get, sorry to go real insider baseball here, but do you get like more residuals because of that? Or is it just kind of like a, it's more of a title thing? You know, I don't have, I don't know. I hope I do, but I don't know. I haven't been following. I want to check the WGA for that one. Yeah. There might be years and years of screen story <laughs> well, residuals. Well, no, we we had a call about two, two, two and a half months ago from uh, Will Ferrell's people. Oh, that's wanting, right about the remake. Wanting idea, right? to remake it, and uh, look at that. That that is Bill that, Forsyth. That Bill Forsyth as in a full kid, nerd mode. In fully nerd mode, and he gained like like twenty or thirty pounds to do it. Really? And that may be one of Will's first first roles. And he's a brilliant actor. I mean, he's gone on to so many movies. Well, he, he, when he came on, he starred for me in, a, in the Masters of Horror that's that right. I did. Oh, that's right. Oh, and, my you know, God. we all scream for ice cream. And he's just, he's just a wonderful actor. He's and, a, the definition of a heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and not not just because I mean he's pulling off a Guillermo del Toro look here, which I think is very admirable. Before if, we feel good, if Guillermo. anything, del Toro went like, "Oh fucking hey, that guy stole my fucking look." <laughs> Those Coke bottle glasses and everything. But even like, oh by the way, great Easter egg: Henry Thomas, star of ET, standing in front of a poster for ET the game. Yes, yes. Lots of Easter eggs in this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and also, uh, uh, Christina. Uh, Nigra, I guess she it, was in uh, Twilight Zone the movie. She was she was the little girl in the uh, in George Miller's uh, airplane right. one. That's what I remember her from. Mm-hmm. You heard the captain? No smoking, and she's amazing in this. She looks like do you know who the actress Kelly Maroney from yeah, uh, I do. Uh, Night of the Comet? She looks like a young Kelly Maroney. Oh boy! But uh, yeah, and, and the thing that I think is so admirable about this movie, amongst other things. Um, you know, because I remember there being a lot of criticism when the film came out that this was just an Atari commercial. And if you're looking at this, this scene right here with all of the product placement around it, it's kind of hard to deny that mm-hmm. it's a little bit of, a, of an Atari commercial. Because at this moment in time, Atari was still like this is before Nintendo, before was Sega, the dominant game before maker. Sony and Xbox all got in the game. Atari was it. It was either Atari or you were collecting quarters from your mom and going to time out in the mall. Well, that's that's what it, that's exactly the, the, this moment in time when we made this. The games were still in the mall. Yep. And the the thing that I, I do want to mention that I think is really admirable admirable about this is the film treats kids with respect. And I you know I, I don't know if you were on set. Were you on set often? 
No, but I went down and I, I, I scouted locations with Richard, and we also interviewed the actors, and I was there when we met Henry Thomas for the first time. Because this San is Henry Antonio. Thomas post-ET, right? Yeah, but in San Antonio. And uh, so I was with all the pre-production, and then I was there for post. What was, if you don't mind my asking, what was the impetus for it being San Antonio aside from Henry Thomas's birthplace? Was I knew San Antonio. Really? Yeah, I, my best friends were from San Antonio. Do you we, find that you do that a lot where, like, you, you know, there's towns, cities that you grew up in or you just know really well where you're like, I, went to I want to secretly go to San Antonio for six months. I went to Northwestern University, so I knew Chicago, so therefore we shot Chicago for Child's Play. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Smart move. <laughs> well, Real shrewd. All you screenwriters out there, if you like your hometown enough or if you want to just hang out in Chicago, write it into your script yeah, and you'll end up shooting it in Bulgaria. It was freezing weather in Chicago, though, on Child's Play. This kid walking through a government building with, okay, it's a fake gun. You know, the times have changed so much that, like, back, back in our day... When used to have fake guns, they didn't have the little like orange nub that you have that's required now because there have been so many unfortunate incidents where kids have gotten shot because they're the guns that they're playing it was, with. It are... was inconceivable at this point in time to think of a school shooting. Yeah, it, like, such things did not never happen. happened. You know, no. or it was just like a weird anomaly. Now we are dealing with it almost on a daily basis. So you know, having that's why I'm so excited morbidly excited maybe that this movie is coming out for a whole new generation of people to see to kind of see what the timestamp was in the culture at the moment where we treated kids with or kids treated these sort of things with enough respect to know the difference between what's real and what's not well i at the toward the end of the movie in the third act i have the bad guy threaten to kill henry and threatens to gut shoot him and you'd Michael never... Michael Murphy, right? Yeah. Oh, and you'd God, never sorry. get away with that today. No way. Not. You know? um, these two dudes, uh, Rick Rosovich, I think is one of the guy's names. Big football player. Um, who has one of the best stunts in the movie by like walking through a pane of glass later on. But also, a very interesting choice of wardrobe. After the scene, he's adorning um, sweatpants the entire rest of the film, which I thought was a very interesting choice for a killer. You know? Mm. Um, but... The thing that, I, that I, I most admire about this movie is that from a production standpoint, now we're both filmmakers. I mean, you're a filmmaker. I'm just still a wannabe, but I... Oh, you're a filmmaker at this point, Joe. We've worked enough with kids to know when they use that old adage, don't work with animals and kids, not even if you're That's thinking... That's W.C. A, Fields. But thank you. Um, but do you know how... It's like people used to think when they used to talk, talked about, like, don't work with kids that they were difficult of some sort. No, well, they'll it's upstage you. It's okay, this is the moment where we justified the window. You'll see Henry will see a killing happening in the reflection yep. of a window. And this is the only, this was our nod to the, to the, there. This was our nod to the source material, which then is never used again. But this is such a great way of setting up Dabney's double character with his imaginary friend by having the reflection already set up without him in the shot, without having, you know, um, Dabney's character in the shot. And then when he comes back later on and you see that there's a difference where he's not in the reflection there, immediately the audience goes like, oh, I get it now. Like, the, But by having that being done cinematically, it's a great setup, you know? 
Well, I, I think that if, if only you would, 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 would see that, really. This is yeah, something... but even back when I was a kid, like, there, there's, there's a, like, I remember this movie having, like, my first jump cut, and that was even way before I even knew what fucking who John Luke Godard was. But there are little moments that I think as kids, we watch these movies enough when we start to realize the language behind it. And between, like, you guys and Lucas and Spielberg, they make it seem so effortless that it's not calling attention to itself that makes us appreciate it when we go, oh, that's how the sausage is made. You know? mm, but mm. The, I want to go back to, like, the, with the kids. Almost every scene, Henry's in the, in the film. Almost every scene, Christina's in the film. And it's not about who's difficult or whatever. It's just hours. You only have a certain amount of hours with kids before they either yeah, have to go to you do, yeah. a teacher or they have to go home. You have to schedule for them. And exactly. And to know how hard it is to work with kids just on a scheduling level. There are there I think there was a shot that earlier in the lobby where there is a very long take between the two kids. So look, look at the shot right here. Dabney's clearly not in the frame. He should be in the frame, but he's not. And I, like that to me, that's usually, because you don't see his reflection. Or exactly, yeah, yeah. he should be right there. Mm -hmm. But the fact, and they see he walks right past him, and you see him in the reflection of the shot. I remember as a kid going, "How did they do that?" But it called attention to me that he was that, imaginary. It, well, not just that he was imaginary; that there's movie magic going on, and it's done in a way that's not, you know, remember Dragon Slayer? That sure. Movie? You know, Matthew Robbins' Dragon Slayer. That was another movie that played all the time on HBO. And I think because of the optical printing that was used in that film, you could kind of tell, like, ah, okay, that's a miniature, or that is, a, you know, a, a green screen or a blue screen shot that's been matted in. It's hard to kind of like go, oh, look at the, you know, the effects are so seamless. Whereas there's moments in this that just use old-fashioned trickery. You know, even when Stack is walking down the steps, if you're locking down the camera and you're just letting him walk through, and then you get a plate, and then just digitally pull him through, it's easy. This is very nice. You see him shot in the reflection? Yeah. And then he appears here. And this this is, this is, this this, is what I... This, this gave me nightmares. When he falls down, it, like, through the tube, which is such a Hitchcock shot. Up, oh, and then the cartridge. Yes. That's what, there were games at that point, the cartridge. Now, there's uh, a bone of contention that some fans for this movie have where there are times that the act, like the actors call it cartridges, and then there are times when it's called like tapes, game oh tapes. Boy. Oh, oh boy. man, you do not want to mess with someone at CES or E3 about oh, That's a Hitchcock shot. That's what I mean. Like For me, as a kid, I remember seeing this first, and then going back and seeing Vertigo going, this guy totally ripped off uh, Richard, you know, Richard and Tom and Cloak and Dagger. Of course. Do you so so like but again moments like these where you have these kids in peril, and the amount of um, trust that Richard has for these kids to be able to pull these scenes together and hold the audience's attention, you know, I like it's incredibly admirable. Was it hard for, or what? Maybe not. I don't know. How was it writing for kids? You know, like like because there's a certain. This is pre John Hughes era. And I feel like after John Hughes started writing for kids, everybody wanted a precocious kid who, who talked like an adult. Mm -hmm. These kids talk like kids. 
Was there, like, when you were writing this script, were there, like, revisions based on the kids talking in rehearsals or whatever? Or, because the kids feel like kids. They're, they're really like kids. I don't like remember kids. that. I mean, I, I just wrote it. I, really? You know, yes. Maybe it's because I have such a juvenile mind. Probably. <laughs> if anything, like, I would, I would say the latter, if anything else. Um, was, when did Dabney come into play? Dabney came in, that's a whole story, too. Oh, my Michael Murphy. God, remember Tanner 88? Yeah. That was, I, that's how I was introduced to him, other than him being the bad guy in this. Well, I think Michael Murphy was working for Woody Allen and for the other great filmmaker who was so prolific, who did, uh, oh gosh. But anyway, he was working a lot at this point, and he was playing good guys all the yeah. time. Mm -hmm. Well, he's got a good, he's got kind of like, um, like Peter Coyote in a way. He's got that kind of like middle class, slightly rugged, sympathetic kind of feel to him. So when you see him in this, you're like, wait a second, that's supposed to be the good guy. That's the good guy, yeah. That's the good bad guy. Yep. But what, like, so how was Dabney involved in this? Because now Dabney's not just playing. Dabney, the studio wanted Dabney. And there was, there was a tension between, between Richard Franklin, the director, and Dabney. And uh, I don't know if I should say this on the on, on a narration, mm -hmm. you know. But I mean, but it, know, they, they did not get along. Yeah, that was it was difficult. But look, like I was saying before, um, like before we started recording, I was watching Guys and Dolls, and that movie is just a celebration of cinema. And then you go on IMDb and you look at the trivia, and it's like Brando and Sinatra did not get along at all. Yet, look how great that movie came out. Yeah, you know, well. I mean, Dabney to me at the time was. He was not the guy, the the evil guy from nine to five. Well, that was what that was that was why why one of the reasons that Richard you know objected to casting oh, it. Oh wow! But yet he was he was he was a name that the studio wanted at that moment. Robert DeCoy, by the way, the uh, from all the RoboCop movies. Oh my Love gosh! Him. Yeah, he's great. But I rem I remember Dabney as being a, a, a lovely guy. There was something else that happened too behind the scenes. I wrote this and I named the boy Davy after uh, Richard's son, mm -hmm. Davy, who at the time was probably the same age or, or even younger, maybe seven or eight, and he had problems and he wasn't be he wasn't uh, he wasn't verbal, mm -hmm. and this was when when I was writing it. And then when we were in pre-production, and Richard was trying to, to, to taking him to doctors and trying to figure out what was going on, Richard and his wife, and that was the first time I heard the word autism. Mm. So that was weighing on Richard throughout this entire production. Wow! Too that he was he was just he was worried terribly about his son. This was Richard's first kids movie i mean it, no, this is no offense to him but it's not like you know someone in universal probably went like get me the guy from road you know road games and psycho 2 to make what's ostensibly a kids movie no that this was me the uh because i couldn't do the window mm -hmm. and i said we, we've got to we've got to leave it and i said what's 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 the surest way to start a movie to start a thriller and it's got to be a kid because we did have a kid kids in uh in in uh, the window, mm -hmm. and uh, so I knew it was kids, and somehow I said imaginary friends, and when I had the I had the idea of an imaginary friend, then then I had a very very interesting story, 
to do that I thought would, would, would hold people over and above and beyond the window. But another thing that, again, as a fan of your work, there is a common theme in films that you were writing at the time, which was, in a way, very Hitchcockian, where you have younger characters who witness an event and no one believes and them. And no one believes them. You know? well, I'll, give you, I'll give you more than that. I, when, I was, when, I was first, when I first got into this, I told Richard, and then I also told uh, the, the, the execs at Universal, look, if you really want to do this, but the boy looks out his window and sees something going on mm -hmm. in the house next door, which is Cornell Woolrich's The Window, yep. I said you'd have a gonzo horror fan look out the window and see a vampire chomping down on somebody in the house next door. That sounds and, familiar. I never yes, heard of that stuff. And they, almost, they all threw me out. They all said, no, God, terrible idea. Ugh. And that, that's what propelled me to go on and write Fright Night as a, as a spec original script. Do you find that that happens a lot where you have ideas that need, it, need someone to say, that can never work or that will never happen? And, and it's like, well, fuck you, watch this. Yes, I think that that does. But I'll tell you, nobody ever says, oh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. No, of course not. Nobody ever says, hey, I was wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, I came to write *Fright Night* because I couldn't write the, this movie the way I wanted, and then I went into the games and to origin into a, 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 an imaginary friend, mm -hmm. which of course we all had as kids at some point, and that all led into the games, which were just coming into and becoming a huge part of, of everybody, young people's lives at it was, that point. It was the culture at that moment. It, it, was, mean, it was burgeoning, on, burgeoning. On radio when you would hear Pac-Man Fever. Remember that, that yeah, old gem? Uh -huh. Did you play a lot of games while you were writing this? I went and I looked at all of them for sure. I was, I had, by that time, I was going to the malls mm -hmm. and I was going into oh, the so game. Oh, you were that creepo that was like, yeah, no. like peering around the corner <laughs> at all the kids playing Dragon's Well, there was Lair. a great one down on Sepulveda where the miniature golf course was. Well, that, I mean, the, the, um, the, Sherman Oaks Galleria, where they shot Just um, below Fast it. Times. Uh -huh. That's, I mean, that was one of the biggest, from what I gather, I wasn't there at the time, but when they were shooting like Commando and Fast Times. That was one of the big place to hang out. That was a huge arcade, you know, like gallery, you know, like good, the good old Nickelodeons, well, well, but right with video Right below games. it was a miniature golf course, and, they, and, their, and their store was all games where you put a quarter in and play a game. And that's what. Oh, those were the days. Now you can do that all on your phone. But look at the game. That's what we saw when we were in the in in the. Uh... But let's be fair. When this movie came out in '83, and even into '84 when it was on HBO, the graphics at the time were revolutionary compared to Pac-Man and Zaxxon and and um, and Pong, if if anything. But all these oh very gosh. crude games. Whereas this, especially like the elevator shots. They feel 3D. We had never seen anything like that before, you know. And there was another Universal movie that came out like maybe eight or nine years later called The Wizard. I don't know if you remember that old gem. Uh, it was with um, Fred Savage, but it was another game where they just revolved everything around uh, a game, which was at the time Super Mario Brothers 3. And Nintendo was involved. It again, it was kind of a that commercial. moment in time. Well, it was that moment in time, but it was also, like, I think the nostalgia for that movie in particular extends itself only so far. Whereas this is a Hitchcockian thriller that just so happens to implement video games into the fold. You know? And an imaginary friend. And All right, so that's something I wanted to ask you. Like, well, I have many things to ask you, but 
two things with that. One, was it always intended in the script that the same actor was going to yes, play yes. Jack oh, Flack God, as yeah. the dad? It had to. Well, I mean, you know what? To be honest, I could see a scenario where they're like, yeah, but we really have to differentiate between the two actors, even though there's the father-son theme at the end and how the dad becomes the hero well, that, at the end. But that, that's, what, that's, that's what it's all building to. That's the payoff, yeah. is, the boys, is, the, is the father becomes the boy's hero in real life. Mm -hmm. And and if that works right, it, it it's an emotional moment and can move you even to tears. When I watched it again a couple of days ago, and again I have seen this movie many times, mm. I still never forget that moment when you know he's walking away from the flames, not giving That's too much away. Plus, if you're listening to this before you're watching the movie, you're a schmuck. Um, but that moment, it's the entire movie builds to that. But here, a moment where. You're doing a bit of a Texas, or at least Richard's doing a bit of a Texas switch where you're using another actor playing Dabney, playing the dad, turning around, and then Dabney behind the uh, door as Jack Flack at that point. How do you, are, are there ever moments in the script that you write on a technical level for moments like that? Because I, no, please yeah, don't, don't take offense to that. I, I've never read one of your scripts, I've always just seen your films. So I, you know, I don't You can know find this script on my website. TH Terror Time. Give myself a plug. Done. Boom. <laughs> I will go. Well, but that's the thing. Like, there are some directors who, you know, whether they know they're directing or not, they, you know, sometimes put in technical things or they put in more cinematic descriptions. And then there are other writers that don't at all. They keep it, the prose as simple as possible. They try to keep it more novel-esque or they try to keep it simple, stupid. But here, it feels like there are moments that almost have to be scripted out in a way so that everybody involved knows, like, oh, we're going to have the same actor in the same scene. No, I did do that. I do, th I do that anyway, yes. You know, but I mean, I was going for emotion on this. Did you ever, oh, you got blown up. Oh, I think that's uh, Richard Franklin right now going, wrong, you're wrong, <laughs> wrong thing. Um, when, when were you, when you were writing this, was there a lot of studio pushback? Because, I mean, universe, this was a universal film. This wasn't an right. independent film. This was a studio film. And, of course, they probably want to make sure that it's still staying a kid's movie. It's still adhering to, like, did you have to deal with not just Universal with notes, but also Atari? Was Atari involved at all? Because I remember, no, like, from I the game remember, level. I don't remember Atari being involved in the sense good. of being able... I think mean, this was a huge uh, possibility for them to, to PR themselves, mm -hmm. but I don't remember them getting any script notes. And the only pressure from the studio was was in terms of the actors and casting. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, you know. I mean, I can't believe that I that I got away with threatening the little boy like I did. Now but, that I look back on it, exactly. So retrospectively, like, you know, we're recording this uh, in uh, May of two thousand twenty-one. And we are in a very interesting time in culture where, you know, you have art being uh, criticized retroactively. You have mm -hmm. films that are, you know, like retroactively being canceled you can't, because, that's... you know, for racial reasons, for, you know, gender reasons, for violence reasons. They were products of the time. And yet, and my theory is this, and this, this whole transfer new transfer of this film to make it look as good as any film coming out thanks vinegar syndrome yeah thank you very much to the company that's doing it but that being said i think that that almost becomes subliminally an issue when you are making a film look as good as anything produced today 
does that mean that the older film has to be put under the same scrutiny culturally? No. No, I agree. You can't. But there's a whole generation of kids or young adults who are watching this not going, that came out in 1983. They got away with that shit back then. <laughs> you know? They, they're seeing it because it, whether or not it's that they don't read the description and see that it was a movie made back then or they, it just looks as good as anything that you would see today as opposed to back then, they feel like it should come under the same scrutiny, that it should be you know, like taken off the shelves because you, you're not allowed to do that with, you know, films or that. Well, then you, then you probably lose three quarters of your art. But I just, I agree. But unfortunately, when you have like comedians now who are, you know, like walking back a lot of their humor and saying like, you know, or not taking ownership for, well, the jokes that I made 20 years ago. They can't, they can't be funny anymore. They, well, that they're being threatened now, but it's like, just own up to those jokes back then they were timely at that time well, you're watching the death of comedy aren't you oh yeah i mean right now you're like, watching you're watching the death of history you know but even with the you know and some people might say right now the death of cinema where everything is now turning into content that it's you know cinema as opposed to tv it's all being thrown onto an amazon algorithm and there's all like every, every thumbnail you have all in the family right next to gone with the wind and Terrifying, is anyone, isn't it? Is anyone going to make the, the, the differentiation between the two? And they have warnings on them now. But, the, you know, th that's the reason why I'm thrilled that movies like this are coming out. Because I want to be able to show my two sons who are, to be honest, they're it's a little squeamish about violence and stuff. Whereas, well, well think, of, think about this. This a boy's the lead here. Yeah. Today, everything's a girl's the lead. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, so. And he's a he's a white male too, you know. So yeah. that, that might change as well. Um, okay, let's. This is one of my favorite stunts. He just walks right the fuck through that thing. Uh -huh. Like that's incredibly impressive. To like, we both have worked with stuntmen, stunts, and broken glass. Even if it's sugar glass, can still cut you. Mm -hmm. That shit is still somewhat dangerous. So like. And it's uh, Tim Rosovich, and the other guy is uh, Eloy Casados. Um, these two guys look at that, look at that outfit. Both of them. <laughs> I, I never thought that gray and tan would have been so threatening. Mm -hmm. uh, now this scene uh, here, this is indicative of every mall in the '80s. Like you can't not look at this. I believe that this mall. I think this was the Glendale Glendale Gallery. Was it really? Yep. I didn't. I didn't remember that. Um, and the uh, the store I uh, like has been the, the the game store was there before, so that wasn't uh, what is it the the game the gamekeeper that's still there. Really? Well, it's I think it's probably now turned into that's like Richard a GameStop. Franklin doing a doing a Hitchcock. That's Franklin of, that's right there. That's Franklin. Yep. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Does he do that with his other movies too? He did, did he do it. that in Psycho Two? He I did it. He, yeah, he's in Psycho Two in the in the in the diner. With his back turned playing a game and turns around. A video game? Yeah. Uh, so was that just like clever, like uh, he was putting it in the background as an Easter egg? Like, hey, video mm, game thriller, I'm the, guy, I'm the guy for I, the job. I, I do remember they sold the game. It was a console, in like a, a pinball machine, a mm -hmm. big one. I can't believe that's Bill Forsythe, but it was. That was before he got his teeth fixed. He lost a lot of weight. Um, I mean, he was he was always a great actor. Um, great actor. They uh, another thing that to point out is um, a copious amount of Dungeons and Dragons in the background. 
Yes. The well, production designer went all out on that. I always wanted to do a movie on did it. You ever, did you ever play D&D? Yes. It's become, it's it's huge again. Still playing. It's huge now. Because of role playing? Well, not just that, but because now you are not zooming to, it, are they? They are. They are. Yep. It's, wow. It's like, in le especially, I just read an article that um, D&D exploded during COVID because, and, and for, again, we're, this is. It makes sense. Post-COVID right now, we are both vaccinated, so we're, we're hugging and kissing all over. Um, well, maybe we'll save that for the interview after. <laughs> but because of the pandemic and everyone being so separated there was a need for a gathering of sorts you know and D&D became and huge again good, boy, oh boy. and you know look D&D &D was our gaming before gaming you know Atari when they had the 2600 yes you're right it preceded it really gaming. was I mean that's that's the beauty of when you like in the opening scene when you have Jack Flack running after or being run over by a bunch of D and D die, like that to me, that was the ushering in of okay, out with the old in with the new, you know, because that was for the longest time that was our joysticks was those two goddamn die, mm -hmm. and then our imaginations. And a paradise. And then, and then here, it's the controller, it's the graphics. Things changed here. I mean, this was advanced shit. That was that was state of the art at the time. This all right, so and coming Look up. Look at here, the size of the walkie talkie. Oh my god. Like like huge. This is this is this is a beat this is a couple of beats before cell phones. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this yeah, is I wonder a, what his cell service is like. Well right this now. is IBM this is I, IBM had the only computer. I was working on something called an Osborne portable computer to write. Had like a three to three by five inch green screen. Oh, oh my God! Oh, you had the like the little yes, LED yes, thing. Yes, yes, yes. How did a, you write like that? Well, because carefully. It, well, carefully, yes. But I, mean, I can't tell you what an ex, what a what a what a game changer it was, being able to do revisions on a screen and not having to get white out and do it yeah. in a, in a, on an on IBM Selectrix. Gone are the days where uh, like people would go, oh, I just made a typo at the end of the page, and now I got to rip it out and do it all over. Well, they use whiteout, yeah. and, and that's what you do. Uh, the another thing here, again, as a gamer, when they showed the box, the fifty, the Atari fifty two hundred box, and then all of these other titles like Moon Patrol and Tempest and Pengo, like again, that was made crack it made it real for, for you. Well, not, it not just made it real, it made us salivate over the actual game. Now, when the game actually came out, the game was, um, like I said before, it was originally called Agent X, and then they retrofitted it and turned it into Cloak, uh, and, Cloak Dagger. and Dagger. Now, Atari already had a major debacle over um, the E.T. game. That no, was I that. didn't know that. Oh boy, do you have four hours after this commentary? They came out know. with an ET game and it wasn't any good. It was considered the worst game of all time. Oh my it, gosh. It nearly bankrupted the company. And the lore is is that Atari actually took all the unsold games and buried them in a ditch in Vegas. I've heard that. I've, there's, there's some a kind whole of a mystery document, to that. There's a whole documentary about it. Mm -hmm. But now, anyone who's listening and who has played the ET game knows. It is arguably the worst game. This of is all the time. Japanese gardens in San Antonio. So this is location stuff. This, this is location. Yes. Was it mostly shot on location, other than like the stuff that was like Glendale Galleria, and then later on when we go to the Alamo? I know that there was. Yes, stuff that was I, shot but on the but I thought the interior of the game of the game store was done on a set here in I the think Universal. You're right. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of the exteriors and stuff. 
like like this scene with They're uh, all San Michael Antonio. Murphy. Michael Murphy, what a great actor. Like again, you you nailed it. Like you couldn't pick someone better that is not going to lure the audience into thinking, oh, bad guy. <laughs> I mean, Tim and Elena and Aloy, the the two henchmen, like, yeah, those guys walk through walls practically. Like they're they're a formidable force. Oh, don't do it, don't do it with the game like the, the cartridge, not tape. She seems so bored with death right here. <laughs> she's like, Davy, come on. Like she's just like, eh, whatever. She um she's a delight. She's one of those like kid actors that she had a very, personality. She very closely veers towards annoyance. Like you like if Well, she's you, irritating. But she's it, funny, but funny charming, irritating. But a charming sort of way. Like okay. the way that George Miller used her in um uh, in Twilight Zone, the in movie. Twilight Zone, the movie. Well, she's that's why we cast her. Annoying, was, annoying. But we know? cast her because of that, because she was so good. She's in that. great. And, and the thing is, she's got natural, like, I mean, I know that they are just friends, but they had, she and Henry have natural chemistry together. Like, you could see those two kids could hang out. Great luck. Know? Great luck. But that's one thing that, as a kid, I think I noticed a lot. There was a movie called Ruskies with uh, Peter Billingsley that came oh out goodness. in the mid-80s. Yeah. And even, oh, God, what was it? Explorers. Remember Explorers? Joe Dante's Explorers? Yes. Both of those movies, and I'm sure there's someone listening to this now who's going to contest this, but I didn't believe that those kids were actually friends. They looked like they had met in central casting or probably in one of the apartments you know off of um Coenga that were like while their parents took them to LA Look at this little, uh, Henry pulls a pistol on and the guy and then shoots you couldn't get you couldn't Fake get blood that on him. you couldn't get that you no. couldn't do that today <laughs> by the way excellent choice of of red for the fake blood that's uh, something that's always been a, a a bone that I always have to pick with certain movies i mean i know it's fake blood but that's particularly good fake blood um but you know what I mean? Like, like sometimes when kids are cast, and I think this is less so when you deal with like teenagers. Teenagers, when you're in high school, like you know, even though you're in cliques, I think it's easier to cast teenage movies and high school movies and believe that those kids could be friends. Well, the argument is the kids are always too old. Yeah, <laughs> or exactly, or they're thir- you know they're they're thirteen going on thirty. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this movie, like even though like. He seems a little older. She seems a little younger. I believe that they're friends. There's um, a natural repartee between the two kids that just feels very organic. Whereas I've seen plenty of other movies where it just seems like the kids just met a week before or even the day Terrific before. Terrific child actors. Yeah. I mean, like, did you get to interact at all with Henry? Yeah, well, I cast him. So you were, like, well, aside like, from, I, I, like, this kid's going to be huge. The parents brought the kid... Brought the kids to the to the hotel in uh, in San Antonio, and we sat and we talked to them for an hour, and we 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 read and we we acted the scenes, and oh, I read okay. opposite Henry. All right, I have to ask, and maybe you know this or maybe you don't, but uh, and I think we've both dealt with it before. When you're location shooting, right? Like when you're, say, like for me, for example, when I had to shoot two movies in Serbia. And they oh said, you can only bring three American actors. Everyone else has to be European. No, you bring, you bring, so your, you bring your keys with you. Yeah. And they brought them here. But here's the thing, is that Henry was born in San Antonio. Right. So I wonder if some savvy executive probably went like, could we cast him as local and save a couple bucks? No, that I don't know. That I, I wouldn't be surprised, I, but well, I don't The thing know. is, I would not be surprised if that came up <clears> at all. 
um, yeah, it's so funny seeing a kid in peril now in, like, on location and, like, with a gun. Mm. It's mm. so weird now. Whereas that just felt very commonplace. It was, there was a level of respect that I think we had as audience members and also kids had for general peril in cinema. Whereas everything has been so, everything's been made so safe. Okay, we're going to come to the, we're on the river walk now, mm -hmm. which was at that point, look at that, they're really shooting at him. The, uh, the river walk, and he's going to hop in a boat, and he's going to meet two older people who seem to help him. Oh, boy. Yes. The best cameos ever. Yes, and that's John McIntyre and his wife. Jeanette Nolan. Jeanette Nolan and their Hitchcock, they were Hitchcock regulars. Okay, now that I have you here, did you write it for them? Yes, wrote it for them and did the missing finger or the missing piece of a finger mm -hmm. because that's from Hitchcock's 33 steps, 34 steps. Yeah. <coughs> and, that, and that's one of the things that, like, again, I, as a kid, when I was six or seven when this movie first came out, I didn't know who the hell that, you know, John and Jeanette were. They were just these kindly old people that looked yeah. like they had just walked straight out of mm -hmm. a universal movie. You know, um, all right. So this stuff, real, real quick. Um, when you were like, right? When you were writing all this stuff, I, I've I've worked with writers who feel the need to completely immerse themselves in the tech, because you know this stuff starts getting into the stealth bomber, and this is one of the first movies that I ever remember seeing a stealth bomber in. Mm -hmm. Did you? Did you like? How did you? We how identified did you work stealth in? bomber because it was all over the news at the time. The first bomber that that, that wasn't that couldn't be seen by radar, mm -hmm. but no, I didn't go into figuring out the, the architectural drawings. But like when you're dealing with coding, for example, like you know, like Forsyth's character, oh, poor guy. What a great shot, by the way. Oh, mm. the zoom in. Mm. Some, by the way, some fantastic zooms in this movie. Like that's one thing that I truly miss. And got the reflection in the, in the, in the... And you get Michael Murphy. Like, people don't respect the idea that that was both a close-up, but also when they zoom in, now the camera, uh, the focus puller has to rack to get Michael Murphy in the shot, you know, like, or get him in focus. Mm -hmm. That's not an easy shot to do. No, you keep doing it until you get it. I truly miss zooms in movies. I really do. They don't I, do them anymore? If they do them, it's either for kitsch value or nostalgia value, you know what I mean? Like it's not used as a, um, it's not used as much. I'm sure there's some filmmakers that I love using them. I use them all the time. But even when I've done them in the past, most times whenever I've done it, the DP goes like, oh, you're trying to you know, evoke the 60s or something like that? You're trying well, to like- Well, they, they went crazy with Zooms in the 60s. Yeah, the 60s everything and 70s. was Zooming in, Zoom. When, Michael Winner. Yeah. Yes, when you look at Michael Winner, but if you look at like Michael Winner or even, um, like uh, some of the Italian spaghetti Western directors, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, uh, I mean, Leone to a degree, but some of the other guys too, when you find out that they had, okay, we have to do, you know, six setups, but you only have one shot. So now I have to do a close up and then pull all the way out to a wide. I mean, do turn it into a one, you mean? And then, yeah, but like, well, you don't that, realize yeah. that the audience doesn't realize that because you're using different focal lengths, mm -hmm. you know? So the zoom in a lot of ways, almost kind of saved your butt whereas i still i feel like there's like like a film like this is using it purely not just to cover a scene just to cover their butts but going like like that moment that richard uses the zoom where it goes into the monitor like that was a a clear stylistic choice 
and one that probably saved his butt because, you know, if this was a rated R film, they'd show the splatter against the wall. No, you know, yeah. Did you, was there ever talk about this being... Um, yes, it was a very, very thin line between this and going to a... Going to a PG thirteen or an R. Well, this is bef- like this is one of the films that came out right on the precipice because this came out before Red Dawn, right? Yep. So, but it's very dark. Like, there's some real dark scenes in it that I think, if reevaluated, there's a good chance that this probably could have gotten the PG thirteen. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can't believe it because I have, I have. Toward the end, I have a line where, 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 as I said, where Michael Murphy threatens to gut shoot the kid. Mm-hmm. And you could never do that today. No. You know, and yet I don't remember anybody objecting to that. But I remember them, I remember them being very, very careful about a, about a pistol or a gun being used, how close it could be to, the, to, the, to Henry Thomas's head and, the, the, you know, the blood splatters and, you know, all of that had to be very, very carefully done. So we get, what was this, a PG or a PG-13? This is PG. PG. Yep. Uh, that amazes me. But look at this or look at Poltergeist. You know, those are PG in the books. But Poltergeist is practically rated R in terms of its intensity, you know? Oh, boy, or when that clown just, comes out from under the bed. fucking terrifying. <laughs> um, I, I do want to give a shout-out to uh, Ronald Kaplan, who is the costume designer. We like we, There's been so many great costumes in this, especially great job. Jack Flack's co- leather costume mm-hmm. that's that thing should be in a museum that thing is so gorgeous looking um and uh this is where we start to introduce the couple all right so as these guys sit down this is the first time that we're introducing john and Jeanette's character yes who are coming in i mean let's let's talk story structure and, okay. and let's also talk like you like couldn't do spoilers. this today oh any of what? he pulls out a switchblade He's going to gut the kid. <laughs> I mean, anything that happens to this kid today would be like, oh, no, we're just going to give Can't you a it. hearty Can't reprimand yep, yep, or yep. some demerits or whatever. But the fact that you introduce essentially the big bads in this film midway through in a very classic Hitchcockian way by having them be as innocuous as possible. I mean, you're taking when I was young back in my day. Mm. These were the two. These were two voices from the rescuers. I didn't like really because, and I immediately knew who they were just based on their voices. I knew that it was oh my god, those are the they do they do the voices in the rescuers, but they have a huge lineage in in cinema history. So your you guys casting mm-hmm. them was this something that was like in the script stage? You knew that you needed like two actors who were coming with such Hollywood lineage, or was this something where it was like? Later on in the casting, you're like, you know who we could use? Was it something that was like early on? Uh, no, I think it was like, you know, later on. See, that that's, yeah. that to me is sin of serendipity. Because it yes, feels luck. so... There, there's there's I mean, What McIntyre. a great reveal, too. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, what yeah, a yeah. perfect reveal. Their costumes, their, you know, their demeanor. The two kids sucking face in the background, of course. You know, nice little light touch there. But... They they come off as if they just stepped off of that Spielberg short in Twilight Zone the movie, the, like everything about them, the costumes, the the delivery, the hats. There is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing threatening about them whatsoever. No, no. And then yet, I mean, if you they're going to the, turn out to be if and when you see the movie, they they turn out to be the baddest of the bad. Yeah, exactly. But 
when when you guys were casting this, I mean, obviously Richard being the Hitchcock aficionado that he was, he was, he was. Were there anybody else? Were there any other like? Because uh, they were t- there, there, there were a couple in real life mm-hmm. as well, right? That's right. They were married. So you know, you're you're like almost. That's why I asked. Like, it almost is feels it, like is you there wrote anything it else for that them. Hitchcockian in it? I mean, this whole movie is vintage well, Hitchcockian. Yes, when he takes off the glove and reveals the finger missing. That's yeah. right at what you said, uh, 33 Steps, right? 33 Steps, yeah. But when when you're coming up with these two characters, did you have anyone else in mind that you were writing for? Or was it just like, ah, oh, you know no, what? No, we, 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 knew, we knew that uh, for Richard told me they were available. Ooh. So, you know, that... Who, sta- who tries to stab a kid? <laughs> That's Dear right. Dear God. I also I got to say the stunt work in this whoever did the stunt double work for Henry really great job because how many times have we seen in movies where it's a kid in peril the kid's running down the street or jumps off of a bridge whatever and then suddenly it cuts to a 33 year old in a wig and the yeah, same costume yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. or a little person who's you know the yeah, well, that's benefactor that's of jumping that yeah. through but really well. And I think that's also attributed to where Richard knows where to put the camera. Well, look, look, he's pulling back wide enough so you can see the bridge. Yep. Throughout this whole thing, he's been getting San Antonio. He started with wide shots and big enough that you, that you saw with, you know, where you were. I, I wish we had Richard here for, like, like questions like this. But so do I. I've always been so curious about, like, how long. Like, do you, do you remember what the shoot days were on this? No, but I have, I have a script... I have a production script here someplace. You'd call, you'd call Jack Ulrich, who works with me, and he'd get you a copy. I'd be been, very curious to I've see. I've been selling them. <laughs> oh, oh, really? At what website, perchance? TH Terror Time. Boom. We're going to get at least three more plugs in here before the end of the commentary. <laughs> um, the fact that like you, you guys put dead bodies in front of kids. Again, <laughs> big no-no. Like, I, between this... And when Chunk discovers the dead body in Goonies, like, yeah. I remember thinking, like, my, my God, when I grow up, I'm going to be, and stand by me, I thought, oh, man, like, it feels like a rite of passage here. Shouldn't I be seeing a dead body at one point or another? Like, when I got to 13 or 14, mm-hmm. I had not seen a dead body yet. I felt like I was a little gypped, to be honest. Like, I felt like... Well, you're going to see the dead body because it's going to end up in the car with him. That still freaks Scary. me out. Yeah. I, again, being a little kid and... Well, you're looking looking at a rising suspense line. Mm -hmm. Things keep getting worse and worse for the kids. Another thing that I want to You're taking away safe spaces. Well, yeah. But you're also, and and like, I'm saying this as we were doing like an overhead shot of the kids, for the most part, and I think this is definitely something that um, got used more and more in the 80s, um, the camera was lowered down to the kid's eye level. And I think that that's, again, subliminally, you're now relating to the kid more than you are if you were, you know, putting the camera up by where where Dabney is. That makes so and that shot, by the way, where he just walks Amazing, through, like you know, like just walks into traffic. You time that out. What a great there, transition! Oh yeah, right there, there you go. There's and and you know what? It's crude as fuck, but it still works. You know, like it doesn't make sense. Um, Geographically, because the camera is kind of tilted down as opposed to being like on a, on a safe level. And you're not seeing like, you know, tubes and pipes and shit like that in the ground. You still get it, though. You still understand mm-hmm. based on the language like, oh, I get it. We're going underground now. And I think that that is tantamount to how the audience is being paid respect. And if this is a kid's movie and they're using. Ah, ah. Oh, God. There's there. There's there's. 
There's the Forsyth g- does a great dead body. <laughs> he's, he gives great he gives great corpse. But you know, like like I was saying before, the fact that Richard keeps the camera at eye level for the the kid the kid scenes mm-hmm. made me as an eight you know seven or eight year old when I was watching this movie go well I'm Danny you know like I'm I'm Davy I'm that kid. I'm not watching this from the parents' perspective. And I've noticed like a lot of um, Disney movies from the 70s and even some films like that were considered family films in the 80s. They were kind of shooting it uh, like higher. They higher? were shooting the kids from parents' perspectives. And to be honest, like that made me disassociate myself from relating to the characters as much as where this movie wants to whether you're a kid or a kid at heart shoot for the kid it's davy it's you know it's it's davy and christina's character the whole way but dear god man what you're, you're a sadist the body rolls you're, a go- on. you're a goddamn sadist putting this in a, in a scene <laughs> and like jack flax in there with him that's even more now it's even more perverted you have two a dead dude an imaginary friend and a poor kid in there. Yeah, twelve-year-old kid. Uh. One, one thing I wanted to bring up that um, kind of pays off later on when the uh, the reveal of Jack Flack kind of making himself sent, like like appear in front of Michael Murphy at the end, mm-hmm. which is such a weird moment in the most glorious way. Um, when you're because like if, if you think about it, when you're dealing with an imaginary friend, you have to assume that the psychosis of the kid is what's producing everything that comes out of Jack Flack's mouth. And everything in, and you can't do anything where Jack Flack is like opening that trunk. It can't be Jack Flack because he's not there. That's right. Yeah. But there is, you know, when, when like like when you think about Fight Club with like um, you know Tyler Durden's character mm-hmm. and the way that you know Chuck Palahniuk wrote it in the book and how Jim Oles, the writer, ended up like writing it in a way in Fincher how he presented it visually. You have to be really clever with how you present imaginary friends because they are the byproduct of the mind of a, a child, mm-hmm. you know. Or with Tyler Durden, it was you know it was Ed Norton's character. <clears throat> so was there ever any challenges with that when you were writing it, where it's like you you couldn't do certain things? Maybe? No, it was just really really carefully planned out. I mean, but, but from from a script phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh boy, and and how to shoot it. You know, well, that that's the thing that like makes that daunts me is when you deal with imaginary friends like that, you know, or any kind of like non physical character like that. You can the real Alamo, by the way. Now, so this is where so we're now we're in Universal Studios. Before that, we were pretty much the exterior is the real the real Alamo. But now this is in Universal Studios. It looks like it because I've been to the Alamo and that does not look like the Alamo. They wouldn't let us shoot inside. We couldn't get permission. Did you get to go to the basement? Hmm? <laughs> Anybody who's watched Pee-wee's Big Adventure gets that joke. So oh. there's a whole, like, is there, you know, go to the basement. I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. Anyway, um, but yeah, this is uh, Universal Studios, and um, it, it works, though. You know, like, it, sure it does. I don't think anybody has, you know, gone like... Nobody said, hey, that isn't the real Alamo. It interior. works. It totally works. But it also, there is something to be said about how things shot on the Universal lot feel like they're shot on the Universal lot. And that's not a detriment to it. Okay. It's just there's an, a certain But look at air the, look at the crane it. shot that was in there earlier. That, that's the thing. You couldn't do that. You would you never be able to get away with certain visual histronics like that if you didn't have the ability to fly away walls. No. To be able to have a ceiling that had a lighting grid. No. When you're, let me ask you this, as a filmmaker yourself, 
Do you prefer studio or do you prefer locations? I build everything. So you'd prefer to have the complete, well, then you, uh, then you late, have, like the latitude to be able to do anything? Yeah, then you can, then you can shoot or design camera angles so you're not stopped. See, I, I don't want to date you at all. How many I mean, times I've always you, wanted to date you, but you know. Like, how many times have you been in a real location though and you find yourself with the back, back against the wall? Here's the thing. I grew up with those limitations, and I almost prefer it sometimes. Okay. So, like, but that's just me. Uh, like, I think that. Well, you know, the not that I'm going and being like I have to be all verite and shit. The, the great one is the t detective story, which I think was the first Hollywood movie where they really went on location. What was really, that, late forties, very, very early fifties. Mm -hmm. But that that style of like a, a shot that I miss from from film that I think was used a lot in like, you know, from the 50s all the way to maybe the 80s and 90s was that tracking shot that you would do from say, the living room to the kitchen where you'd go through a wall. Remember those shots? Like you'd have a wide shot yeah, of it, sure. you know, and then you'd follow everyone. It. And well, then you'd, you'd be, you'd They're literally go walls. through the wall. You're behind that one wall and you go through the wall that like separates well, do the living dissolve? room from the kitchen. No, it was just because you had two sets there and the camera just, oh, okay, yeah. and the audience accepted it, you know, because when you flip the world and you're looking at the opposite angle, you see the walls there, you know, and you're going, oh yeah, that makes sense or whatever. But I do miss when filmmakers use that. And like it's, I guess you could say it's a, a little more classicist, but that's, that's where filmmakers like yourself, like Richard, are pulling from the, the, the best, you know, well, you from, do both. from the classic filmmakers, you know. We're unfortunately, like my generation, we're coming from like the movie brats. Well, you, I, well who had, it's very seldom to get the money to do this anymore. It's very seldom. The studios don't even, don't even have the same production facilities they used to. Yep. Well, now you're almost being forced to go to a completely different country. It, you know, the date, like, I have a film that I'm prepping right now. Now I'm dating it, and I'm probably also um, screwing everything up by, by jinxing it. But uh, I have a film that I'm prepping now that's being shot in Los Angeles. And whenever you mention that, people are like, oh, my God, really? Mm. Holy shit. Like, how much money do you have? And it's not even that. We have a tax break. But... It's, it used to be, that's where everyone shot. You, you, know? got, you got some money from the fund. Yeah. Yeah, great. Which is awesome. This is the, this coming up to the Hitchcock moment where she reveals that a finger is missing. And this is such a great moment too because you're using a, a, you know Richard's shooting process. So we're mm -hmm. on a blue screen, probably on a set, you know, like, yeah. or if anything, on a, a sound stage. blue screen, that would have been a... That, that no, that's just rear projection, yeah, like, rear like projection. on the day. Um, the the you can tell there is a change in lighting here that is very subtle, but it's you also can tell one, on a stage. Yeah, but it's also I think something that like again in a subliminal way, the audience is starting to feel the danger involved. You mm -hmm. know that I don't think if these two, you know, kindly old people were just part of the story and just happened to be where Davey was at the time. <laughs> there you go. Oh, There's the reveal on the missing shot. finger. Was that was that a real like person? Yes, that's a real person. So if you notice here, the lighting has completely changed. It, it, like it, it's gotten dark now. And mm -hmm. I think that that was at least again, it was one of those weird things as a kid that I always remember thinking like, uh-oh, shit just got real. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what like the techniques were at the time, but we've just gone from day to night in 30 seconds. And does the audience really care? You know something, I didn't, you're right. I'd forgotten that. Like seriously, 30 seconds has passed and we've now gone from what 
pretty much looked like a nice late afternoon. Late afternoon to the night. Darkness. And I think that just from a stylistic point, I don't think you can get away with that if they were on a processed truck or if they were really like moving. I think that there's enough audience members who know enough about the cinematic language to know that that's not real, that that's, that's an expressive moment. And because of that expressive moment, filmmakers can get away with going like, and you know what, I feel like this should be night because it's getting dark. Like the, the movie's getting dark. So many of these shots were worked out in the script. Like where she put the chloroform over the camera lens mm -hmm. and it goes to, goes to block the little boy. The, uh, so much of the planning, when I was working with Richard, we planned out, we would board out the visual set pieces and I would write into them. I, I, that was my next question was like, how much of this was like storyboarded, how much well, not of this the was... story, but where you where you had a shot like that where mm -hmm. you had a black with the chloroform coming over it, that was written in. Mm. But I can't remember whose idea that was. But where we, it was more know, of a like a POV moment. Yeah, like, we went through it to do it. Also, st stupidest henchman ever. Why you leave the keys? <laughs> I know plot convenience and all that, but um, but still, like, come on, mm. dude, don't be a schmuck. Um, this was this was also a great like um, as a kid this was a, a I guess a wish fulfillment moment when you're going the kid gets to drive the car <laughs> that was huge for anyone who is you know not watching Fast Times at Ridgemont High and relating where we were all like little kids and you're going wait the kid from E.T. gets to drive a fucking car and gets to like Tokyo Drift at one point in the parking lot. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's ah. good. That, that's what we wanted as kids. We wanted to have those moments of adventure. Well, it's all wish fulfillment, well, isn't it, it? This is where it becomes, to me, you know, it goes from being almost like a video game commercial to a spy thriller to an out-and-out -out adventure film, you know? And that's something that I don't think, like, the adventure genre is one that I think is being neglected these days. You know, like, how many adventure films can you name that have come out in the last 10 years? Not many, you know, that aren't inherently, like, Indiana Jones-type ripoffs, you know, which, which though those aren't even around anymore. There isn't that sense of, because adventure to me... Why is that, Joe? I, honestly, I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I think it's just the, the sign of the times. It'll probably take one well, movie, I, 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 like I, an Uncharted, you know, an adaptation for them I to kind of bring it back. I think all the Marvel movies have taken them away from any reality and gone into huge production budgets. I think you're right in that respect. And because to me, adventure combined thriller, horror, action. But, and, and to me, adventure was grounded, though. It wasn't Thanos destroying a billion people. No, it was grounded. It, this is grounded. This is still grounded. Yes. This is, you know what, as much as you're dealing with, you know, uh, a story where a kid has an imaginary friend that the film, like that the movie sees, that the audience sees, that we're dealing with spies using video game cartridges or tapes for mm -hmm. nefarious purposes. You know what? All that could play today. All of it could. Think about like Fortnite and, mm -hmm. you know, video games in your pocket and the way that you know the dark web works all of this can translate well into like what could be a remake you know and you've now had two of your films remade right you had you've had child's play remade and you've had fright night remade and everything's been sequelized to death and of course but this is one of those movies that more than 
because like I'm of the camp as much as I, I know the people who have made both the Fright Night and the, the Child's Play remakes, I personally feel like those films do stand up as timeless. Both Fright Night and Child's Play do stand up as timeless. This movie is very much a product of its time. I think most of the Logan people who Dagger. are listening, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think most of the people that are watching this right now have a certain sense of nostalgia for it, whether it's their undying love for Dabney Coleman because the, or... Because the games, because the games the, date so the, much? Because it, you know, the second that this movie came out, it became a time capsule because two years later, Atari was gone. And then a year after that, Nintendo became the be-all, end-all. Right. You know? So that that's what I mean. Like, this is something where you could take everything, look at this drift right here, boom, but they don't show it, which was always bothered me. I was like, come on, they couldn't show the kid impacting? That's that's bad stunt coordination, just saying. I'm not giving you notes, I swear, Tom. Um, you know what I mean, though? Like, th you could take everything from this film. You could take this script and just change Atari for Xbox or Atari for you know, an online game or Apple, you know, mm -hmm. Apple Arcade. You could take everything else and you can update it in a way that will feel as prevalent and as relevant as it was back in the day. Whereas I don't think other films like this could be You, mean you could update the games and update yeah, the phones I mean, and everything. Great still stuff, work. by the way. Yeah, well, we absolutely well, Because still the work. emotion would work. It's a boy trying to trying to meet his father. The thing that would make it dangerous, though, and this would be something that, like, if I ever got the chance to, like, if I pitched on this, I would have to say, you got to put the kid in peril. You can't. What's well, it has all to be about? A kid. It can't be a seventeen-year-old kid. No. It's got to be, a, you know. I mean, how old was Henry here? Like twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Something. You like got to put a twelve-year-old kid in peril, and I'm not talking Larry Clark peril. Mm. I'm talking about like serious adventure peril where there's a moment because when you're a kid watching this movie back in the day there was still that little hint of a chance that he's not going to make it you know what i mean mm -hmm. like there was still moments that felt big enough where you'd go this this might be a scrape that old henry thomas might not be able, to get, not be able to get out of this time and you need that sense of, sense of danger. I think the only thing working against this movie in terms of like where, um, where Henry was at the time was he was the E.T. kid. So he was like everywhere. He was, oh, he was the most popular kid <clears throat> in pop culture at the time. Mm -hmm. So you'd say to yourself like, would they really kill that kid? <laughs> where, where is, now look, what the, the fuck again. was that? Iris, that's an old-fashioned iris. But with a dissolve as well, I think the uh, negative cutter fucked up that day. I, th mm -hmm. I think the dude over at Photochem, who was probably working on the pan and scans, was like, oh, shit, did they want an iris or a dissolve? Ah, eh, fuck it, <laughs> give them both. That's eh, fine. I've ne But you know what? I'm, f I'm okay with it. Like, as a, f as a fan, you go, well, that's the choice you make. I don't think there's anyone who's going to go, can we go back and digitally fix that up so it can be one or the other? Because mm -hmm. if you think about it, what are irises really used for as a device? If you're in the well, edit you're, right you're, now... You're going back to silent films with yeah, irises. But like if you were in the edit room right now, what would... And someone said like, hey, Tom, I got this fancy new iris you know, filter that we can use in, you know, and do an old school... Like, is there anywhere in the cut that you'd want to do that? Where would you put that? 
Would it be at, say, like the end of a scene where you're wrapping up a moment like they do in yeah, the old no, days? Yeah, no, you know, it's exactly right. You'll see, you'll see there's Because the only other time I've ever seen it used is like when Scorsese uses it for like honing in on someone. Psycho 2. Yeah, but that's closing out a moment, right? That's vignetting it and it goes all black, but it's yep. Tony left alone in the attic. Yeah. And it isolates him and it makes it more emotional. So that's why this, I bring that up. It's like, well, what exactly was he zoning in? No, this in feels on, gratuitous, is what you're saying. It, it, it feels like someone didn't make up their fucking mind. It's like someone's had a note and said, like, is it a dissolve or is it an iris? Eh, it's both fucking. Well, we, we, could ask, we could ask the editor, Andrew London. He's still around. Is he really? Yeah. We, we should, you know what? I think what Vinegar Syndrome needs to do is do an entire special feature just on that cut and get the editor in. <laughs> I'm putting that down in there now, Brad. There you go. Put it in. Um, so as we're now, we're kind of, we're in the third act now. Now we've, you're in the third act. We've now revealed, um, you know, <laughs> we, the, the stakes are definitely set and they are high at this point. He's you asking know? his father to come. What a great Whoa. stunt. Oh. But is now, is this stuff, man, he just cannot get away with, get away from glass. Poor Tim. He well, just loves a, his glass. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an adolescent thriller, isn't it? But it's one that the stakes have gone from, we have this mysterious MacGuffin, which is the video cartridge, mm -hmm. which now has secret plans for the stealth bomber that is being, you know, smuggled like, out of the country, smuggled out. The, you know, the, the stakes scope has gone from very small to incredibly large. Always. Do you, do you like working on bigger scopes like that because a lot of your films also I mean, if you look at like say Fright Night or Child's Play they are very much the stakes are surround now that's a good that's a good iris right that's there. a good iris but that's that's using it as a device to show you something that you wouldn't the well, naked eye wouldn't normally be you able literally to see. put a time clock on it yeah and now we have a bomb involved yes but when you deal with bombs and espionage and you know, and stakes like that. Oh, he's smoking. Jack Flack in is smoking. In front of the kid. Oh my goodness! In front of the kid. Ha ha ha. And a cappuccino. <laughs> oh, how European. I, this is. This might be a personal question. Was that a wig, on what? Dabney? Pardon me. Was that a toupee? I would think. Because I like I, I remembered uh, watching Nine to Five recently and going like, well, it's getting a little thin there, Dab. But I mean, did you ever see the movie Short Time? Yes, that's a that, hold it. Short eyes or short time? No, short time with Dabney Coleman, the one where he plays the cop who's about to retire, and then someone messes up his uh, medical records, and he ends up thinking he has six weeks to live. But the only way that his family's going to get the pension is if he dies in the line of duty. So he deliberately tries to kill himself. No. Oh, it's great, great premise. Film. Well, that was one of the movies that like I fell in love with Dabney Coleman as a kid because of that. And you think like they're bringing out the heavy artillery. Well, look here. at that thing. That it's a fucking bazooka, practically. Submachine gun of the the first order. And this is where he threatens to gut shoot the kid, which you could never get away with today. I don't understand. I mean, I do to a degree, especially considering that now I'm a parent as well, and now I have to deal with my kids going to school every day, and that little twinge in my stomach going like, could my kid's school will be the school today, you know, where the danger has hit home too close. Oh, boy. But my cinema has always been 
a, a vestibule of catharsis where you can get away with certain things that allow for the audience to see it from a safe distance. I mean, look at fucking horror movies. Are we now saying that we're not going to be able to do horror films because there are extremities in it that might make someone seem uncomfortable? That's the whole fucking point. <laughs> Isn't that the whole goddamn point? Mm -hmm. So why can't we, and I'm, again, sounding like a total sadist here, but why couldn't we be able to put a kid in peril these days? I don't get it. You know, and maybe it's just down to bad writing. Maybe you need to have well, I, a good script that's going to make have compelling I'll, enough I'll, characters. I'll come back to it again. I how this is a boy, a little boy in danger. Mm -hmm. Today, everything would be you'd have a superhero, twelve-year-old girl. Yeah, but so, but regardless of the, the their gender, just their age, that you now like it's it's almost verboten to put any kid in danger in a movie without it being really fake or the kid's got to be aged up yeah you know which is a, a total shame um all right so now that we're we're getting close to like one, one of the weirdest things that i've ever seen in a movie um which is how our imaginary friend jack flack becomes Dies. well be, because that's the debate is does michael murphy's character see him no see for years there's like, because if you look at it, and we're getting to it now, so you guys will be able to. Uh, Did they to play it like you saw him, or like you almost saw him? It kind of plays like you almost saw him. Like, like he did see something, hmm. and I was always so curious about that because, in a way, I guess at the point, the, the at the point. Oh, of you the mean film, when he shoots him? Yeah, when 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 Michael Murphy's character. Oh well, shoots yes, him. that no no that that's Jack Flack sacrificing himself for 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 Andy. So all right. Because this For is going to lead me into my next question. Was was there ever any pushback from the studio that, like, does this make sense? Because it's a big fucking leap. No, I don't think so. Because what happened was there was a change in administration. And Bob, somebody had given the go-ahead, and he was let go from Universal. And Oh, by Mark, the way, did you really kill a rat? That's that's messed up. See, yeah. can't even have that anymore. Couldn't do that anymore. The and Marvin, the rats unions were pissed. And Marvin Antonowski came in working for the guy who run Columbia, and I forget. And Universal essentially dumped the film because it wasn't theirs. It wasn't the new administration's mm -hmm. film. And the film went on to enjoy, you know, 20, 30 years of success. And especially exploded on cable. Well, that was one I wanted to ask you because that this was one of the first movies that I remember. I know, like Vinegar Syndrome put out Beastmaster uh, last year that I was honored to be part oh, that's of. Another Plus, one. Michael Murphy Whoa. might be the worst shot in cinema, considering that he couldn't hit that kid at well, all. He shoots, he but shoots kills his, his own buddy. That's right. Um, I mean, kill a kid. Come on, don't be a wuss. Um, but. When this movie came out, Jack like, was, telling, was him to pick, telling the little boy to pick up a gun. And yes, there was a big discussion that I had with uh, Richard in the studio about the little boy shooting back and killing somebody. And I couldn't do it. They wouldn't let me do it. But I, I, I kind of get it, so though. So Jack It's Black, retaining his innocence. In yes, way. yeah. But now, so was that in the original script where Jack Flack has to basically sacrifice himself? Yes. So... When you're you know, like when you're dealing with the studio, when you're dealing with these moments where 
you're you've kind of written yourself into a hole where culture is now dictating because it makes sense that the kid would have to take the moment and survive himself. Couldn't have a twelve year old boy kill somebody, even the bad guy. But that's now who's dictating that? The studio is. Not yes. culture, not the movie well, the studio, and the story itself. The studio being afraid of the MPAA. I, I look, I get it, but it's still like if this if this kid was in this situation in real life, he's not going to pause and go, hmm, what's Jack Valenti going to think about this situation? <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get away with this. I'm sorry, sir. Um, can I um, can I punch you? Yes, and here he thinks or it's the squirt the gun. He, Michael Murphy thinks it's the kid's squirt gun again. Doesn't realize it's a real gun. I mean, that this is this is a terrifying moment, especially when, when the kid is now put into this mo- this position of peril, has an actual gun. But it's perfectly set up. That's the thing. Uh-huh. The fact that this is, in a way, this is a stylistic callback to earlier in the film when they've been in the same position. It's just now Michael Murphy has a goddamn Rambo bazooka. But, but Michael Murphy thinks the kid still has a squirt yeah. gun. So then that's the other thing, too, is that you're now playing with character. Whereas if, if this was... Let's just say that there, that scene earlier on at the, the gardens wasn't there. And this had it in like this moment. Well, it would be was totally here. different. It would be completely different. That's what I thought the last well, time I writing. watched this. That's writing. That, that, that's yeah. That, that that's what you do. Yes, that's what I do. I thought you were just making shit up on the day. No. <laughs> Something like this is so finely tuned. Look at look at Child's Play, Fright Night, uh, Psycho Two. They're so finely tuned. Well, and, I mean, look at the moment in Fright Night when you deal with faith. You know, like the fact that Roddy McDowell's character has to truly use faith. It gets set up earlier on. Thwarted. Oh, here he goes. Okay. Now, now so, Jack Flack is drawing him away. Okay. So how does one write? Yes, here he does see him. You're, um, yes, he does. And when the, kids, when the kid starts talking to him, he thinks somebody, oh, the boy does shoot him. Okay. So that this, was... This was a huge, huge discussion. That, I, that's, that's what blows my mind, is like, what were those discussions like? Well, somehow I got this, and it makes sense, but I know that there was a lot of, a lot of concern about the little boy shooting somebody, even the baddest of the bad guys, but now you have an emotional scene with Jack Flack dying. and, and the little, In other words, the boy's losing his innocence. Yeah. This and is what's happening. Now, this is really impressive considering that you have two plates, essentially, right? Like mm-hmm. when you're dealing with the Dabney plate, which is him, you can see him, and then you have to deal with the translucency of him. So that means that Richard had to shoot it twice. Yes. And you're dealing with a move. In other scenes or even in other films, whenever you're dealing with someone who's translucent, most times you have to lock the camera down. You don't really have the latitude of being able to move it unless you have a motion control camera. And I'm pretty sure we didn't that he, have them I was going to say, like, there was probably no motion control back then. You've got to talk. Andrew London, the editor, would be one to talk to. It, it's, it's really astounding how, the, like, the, oh, the effect this is works. Oh, where, this is where this Davey is rejects, rejects. And this is because eventually all, all little boys, all little kids put away their toys. Oh, is this where the blood comes through the jacket? Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. But it is such a wonderful metaphor for that kind of rite of passage that we all do have to in one way or another. another. We have to grow up past our icons. And, I mean, it is a, a masterstroke of casting and of how you guys are pre- presenting the two characters. Here the blood starts to come. It's because, so well done. Because oh Davies lost faith in him. 
And I got to I got to admire how Richard presented that because in other fashions they would have done it where you would have gotten to a close up of the jacket bleeding. But we've been hanging on that shot for a really long time. And you know that there was someone probably right off camera yeah, with yeah, a bunch of blood tubes yes, pumping it yes. through. But it's the timing. It's waiting for those moments to happen and not just presenting it to the audience where I think audiences are savvy enough to know that when you cut, you're now breaking the reality of the moment. And then now you know that somebody rushed in, changed the jacket, put e the blood on. ECUs here, finally in the most emotional moment. Yeah. And it's funny, too, how you're right. Like, Richard really held back from a lot of closer shots. And you don't get that at all when Henry is with his real dad. In a lot of scenes, for the most part, whenever the, the real version more like of the a dad... Shot. Barely. Yeah. If anything, there were wide shots, and then he's using, you know, like, just blocking to keep them as separated as possible. So that by the time that we do get to the end, you're right, it, it's, and again, an emotional catharsis for the audience to finally see them co-joined. Whereas before, Davey's just been talking to himself. I'm tearing up watching the scene silently. Do you want a tissue? No, <laughs> I, <got a> <laughs> but I mean, you know. Yeah, no, it, it's because it's earned. Because for the longest time we've been dealing, you know, we've been watching someone, and I think everyone can safely Jack say Flack. that Jack Flack is a very charming character. And Jack know? Flack dies when the boy loses faith in him. Which means the boy has moved on where he doesn't need an imaginary friend anymore. He's grown up. And at this point, this is where a boy needs his dad. Well, you're going to really need him on the plane coming up. Not to get personal, but what was your relationship with your dad? Oh, boy. That was. I ask that because it feels very much like this is a one of my One of my great regrets is I did not get to know him better. Really? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I loved him very, very much. He was a wonderful father and everything. But at the time that he passed, I was working so hard and my career was exploding. And I've always regretted that I wasn't, that I didn't, I wasn't there at the hospital with him for longer. When did he die, if you don't mind me asking? Died in 1987. But that said, he did get to see that you made it in a way. Or do you think that he acknowledged that? He was, he was, he had cancer and he was, I don't, here's, here's heartbreak for you. I don't know if he even got to see Fright Night. Oh man. I mean, because I, I asked him and he said he'd been so busy he was trying to get to it. Mm. And then by the time I got down there, he was in the hospital and he was terminal. But what, like, for something like Psycho 2, though? Yes, you saw that. I mean, but the, you wrote, ostensibly, the best sequel to a Hitchcock movie ever made. You know, for someone like your dad, who probably grew up and saw Psycho in the theater. They weren't, they were not film people. They didn't understand any of this show. I, that, I mean, it breaks my heart to hear that. Well, but I had a similar situation too, where my well, my dad was into cars, and I was the kid who was working at his shop, but slipping issues of Fangoria in the catalog <laughs> so yeah, that I sure. could read about Fright Night sure. and Fright Night Part Two. So, to me, like I was never going to take over his business. And where my mom was a huge movie fan, she's the one who took me to see Dawn of the Dead when I was three. That's ah! become lore at this point. <laughs> But my dad was never really big into movies, so we never connected on that that level. But when he saw my first movie, and this was years later, and he was getting very sick at the time because he died of cancer as well. Great wipe, by the way. Um, 
I saw, a, like, they did a screening of it in New York, and I wasn't there, but someone videotaped it. And my dad had said, um, like, they, they, everyone was walking out of the theater, and someone was shooting it. Louis Anderson, by the way. Oh, my er, gosh. Early Louis Anderson. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? I'd forgotten that. Yep, looking sexy with the, with the no-sleeve action. Look at that, that's gravitas right there. Did you, ever, did you see him in Baskets, the show that's on FX, where he plays uh, Zach Galifianakis' mom? That won an Emmy for it. Wow. He's fucking amazing in it. Anyway, but, uh, and this, this guy is the nicest cabbie in film. Uh-huh. This would never happen, and you never had a moment where it's like, hey, kid, you're going to do something for me now. Well, Unless must, that got cut out. He must have been a hot actor at the moment, because now we're back in L.A. Oh, shit, this so stuff. this is all set right at this point. I think I, all set our it looks like it. here. It, it looks like Universal Studios, like around the corner from, from the, the town center. Um, well, I know they built the airport, the interior of the airport. Oh, really? Yeah. This is on a stage set in L.A. Well, anyway, but seeing my dad on video, walking out, seeing my first movie, and then him turning the camera and that's saying, wonderful. Joey, you fucked up. Now, from a kid from Long Island, that's high praise. But that was the first time that I ever felt like he, and he got the passion that I had for film. It was the same that he had for cars. That's lovely. You know? we're, we're from a small town across from Poughkeepsie and the Hudson River. And neither one of my parents, my parents were depression era kids. They were marked by the depression. And You grew up in Poughkeepsie? A small town across the river called Highland. Yeah, I know that. Really? Really. It's near New Paltz, which now is sort of, you know, really well known. It's like 30 minutes out of, um, from uh, Sleepy Hollow, right? Mm, more like an hour. Really? Mm. Yeah, a solid hour. Sleepy Hollow's on the on the Poughkeepsie side. That's right. Of the river. The Highlands and the Bear Mountain side are the, the West Point side. These are the worst cops ever because, <laughs> uh, the, like, there is multiple announcements for Christina's character's name. He's and smoking they're just like, again. And smoking it. in front of them. No one's paying any mind at all. The guy on the left who's got his hand on the on the chair is probably someone's cousin. Uh-huh. I didn't know that this was a set. This just looked like, um, not Ontario, Long Beach. Long Beach Airport. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, like, the guy didn't even give him a, like, didn't even charge him? Lucky bastard. Mm. But yeah, I, I was always curious about the, like, any kind of pushback that you might have gotten from the studio over the ending. Because... Given that you're now you you've created a sentient character in Jack Flack, he's now been taken out, mm-hmm. and now like there this gets pretty intense. The, like the the last twenty minutes of the film, mm-hmm. did did the MPAA intervene? I, know, at I all? don't remember any any problem with this. I remember a problem around the gun and the shooting. Speaking of of things that are dated, the fact that like everyone runs through security now. Like it, it Good lo- luck. It looks like the it looks like the lobby of Universal, the, right. the the black building where they just went. Oh, did you know what? Throw up a cardboard box that looks like uh, one of those like security things, and get a couple people in mullets, and you'll be fine. But this oh, would never happen. Now he just runs through, and one dude comes out. But great, like great comeuppance altogether because. He takes two steps over, and now it just so happens they happen to be in front of the police station office. That's right there. Although, actually, the fact that he's like, oh, those are my parents. I'm like, man, 
Those are some late late blooming romancers right there. Because that cop should have known. It's like, come yeah, on. Those, 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 two, those two old people can't consummate a relationship at this point. Come on now. When you were... when So when the film was done, like, when did you get to come back? Did you get to go into the edit room at all? I was there for the screenings. I remember that. Like, how how involved was, like, were you... Or did, like, uh, the production allow you to be... Like in in post, because was there ever? I, I've always been so fascinated with like when when writers are deployed, so to speak, when they're on a production, whether they it's a spec script or it's a it's a job, so to speak. You know, there's you know the adage where it's like a film is written three times: once on the you know once on a typewriter, once in production, and then also in the edit. You know, there's a a lot of rewriting happening whether you're writing dialogue in ADR for something that slipped through the cracks or no, no, no. rewrites for scenes you know that have to be reshot I didn't, or whatever I didn't, not with my not with, not with my scripts when I was working with the director mm. I mean everything was really tacked down nobody well, I don't even think there were line editing scenes really no so like what well, something that we were talking about before online like uh, offline before we started recording was you know, these this film, and you know, Scream for Help, and you know, they felt even Psycho Two to a degree. Oh, and and this guy right here, uh, the guy who got shot, he is frozen solid. Like th that, this guy definitely earned his keep. Where he's just like, oh god, like he's dead. Like that guy's uh, pro probably they dead. They shot him in the leg, but anyway, yeah. But um, you know, all of this kind of led to your wanting to direct. And well, Scream for Help is what really led me there. But do you feel like, like, when you, like the experience that you had on this and with Psycho 2 and in Scream for yes, Help? Yes, all like, of it did. I was learning every step of the way. Do you feel like... Because sometimes I've heard that screenwriters turn directors almost like what we were saying before about how you know when you get the door slammed on you, that's just fuel for the fire for you to say like, oh yeah, well watch this. Like, did you feel like at that point, like the only way that they're going to retain 100% pure Holland is if I'm the one on set? I felt like that was right, Knight. I really did. Because, I mean, like up until this point, you know, you had worked, was Richard the, the only director that you worked with twice? No, I worked, yeah, he was the only one I worked with twice. I, I did The Beast with him with Philippe Morrow, yeah. it was very good. And then Mark L. Lester with uh, Class of 84, yes. but that was once. Mm -hmm. But like, that's, that's part of the reason why, like when I got older and made the connection between, oh shit, the same guys who did, because you were to me when I was a kid, you weren't the screenwriter of Psycho 2 and Class of 84 and Cloak and Dagger. You were the director of Fright Night and Child's Play and Thinner and mm -hmm. all of those and Fatal Beauty. Can we do another commentary just all about Fatal Beauty? <laughs> Would that be all right? Can we just stop this now and just we'll sometime, go back? Sometime. Just re-record this and we'll just do a Fatal Nobody Beauty commentary. Nobody ever asked me about Fatal Beauty. I could talk about that fucking movie for days. Well, let's see if we can get somebody to do it. All right, Vinegar Syndrome, let's do it. Um, but... You were, to me, you were a, a filmmaker. You were not the writer first. You were a, you know, the kind of jack-of-all-trades kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But when you, then you look back at this film or Psycho 2 or any of the films that you had, you know, less, and, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, but less creative control because you weren't 
the director as well. You were just the screenwriter. Yes, okay, but what I learned was if you work closely with the director when you're writing, mm -hmm. uh, you have a huge amount of influence of making sure what you write gets on the screen as you saw it. How do you find that dance? Like, because that, that seems to be like, sometimes people even try, with all their best intentions, try to make that relationship work, and sometimes it does not work. If you, if, if you Good were Good drugs, writing, is that what it is? I was writing, even now, visual set pieces, which are directorial mm -hmm. in their nature. I refer to them, and that means there's very little dialogue and they're all visual. In order to pull that off, the director really has to know what they are. Mm -hmm. And Richard and I worked, we boarded these, these, the, the Psycho 2 and, the, and, and we boarded together. And then I would- Really? I would, oh yeah, oh yeah, especially with Psycho 2, but with this too. And then I would, I would fill in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of the script, what was, what was indicated by, by coming to an agreement with Richard as we took and we storyboarded. Do you find your did so? Did you take that? So he wasn't going. He wasn't going to deviate from his storyboards because he'd had fifty percent of the input into it. And not only that, but you guys had worked out all the questions that sometimes linger when the screenwriter is gone and there's six weeks of prep yes, left or had, five weeks yes, of prep we left. Had. Yes, we had. Do you do you remember how many drafts of the script you had? No, but there's a lot of work went into it. Now, like we were just talking about the boarding and. You know, a lot of times I've found whenever I'm boarding, um, and unfortunately, a lot of times it ends up coming down to you're doing a lot of boards at the last minute. And this is like, and then you get from the first AD or the unit production manager, we can't put out a marigold draft. You know, like you can't go back and do an entirely new draft because you came up with some idea in the boards and now we got to go back to form. No, I was very, very lucky that I was, I was, I was writing with, Richard there, mm -hmm. and as and as we worked, he went farther and farther away. Mm -hmm. He was going away on this already. Got it. And then he then he was going away, but he was totally there for for uh, for Psycho too, and and for this as well. He was here for the set pieces, but even even here, he was starting to become emotionally distracted because of his own personal problems. Yeah. But like we were saying before, like, and I think that this is true for any filmmaker who. So you know, isn't a, I wouldn't, I don't want to say like a hack, but you know, there's a few of those out there that just come in, try to make a day and then get out. But most of us, I know yourself included, you do put yourself in your work. It, it, it all depends on how much time you have and how it is set up. And if you're, if you, if you're, if you know, if you're developing, if, if the, the director was on was involved with both Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger mm -hmm. from the inception. And those we were hired as a team. And that's so unusual today. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It does it happens very rarely. Um, and if anything, when it does happen, there's also usually a lot of negotiation because the studio or the producers or whoever want to break up that team because they feel like, oh well then they're just gonna gang up on us and we don't need you know, power by numbers. We well, need to be able know. to separate them so that we Here have more power. with his father. This is the first time that they hug in the whole movie. The whole movie. Um, was with the, with the ticking clock, uh, it's always been something that is so tricky to do in the edit because on, in script form, you 
would hope that the filmmakers, the editor, whoever, is going to try to do it as real time as possible. But then you actually get into the edit and you start realizing that there are certain beats <laughs> that have to be hit, that you gotta make sure that you have enough time to show, you know, D Dabney feeding Davy out of the window and be able to hold on, to be able to give maximum, you know, maximum suspense of the moment. And you quickly find out, and this happened to me a couple times too in other films, that when you do have that ticking clock, it almost works against you. you you're almost like fighting against it because you're fighting the realism going, well, technically, this movie should have been over already and the bomb should have already fucking gone off. But you also want to make sure that the father and the son have this moment of yes, connection before he lets them go. And lets him go and rolls away, and then the the, the plane well, has enough. I don't know oh, why. great stunt! He there. didn't go in for close-ups for for, for for a reveal and a close-up on the on the, on, on the on Dabney and the boy when he was hanging him off the plane. Yeah, I don't know why. But, you know what though? Sometimes a shot like that might also work better in a wider shot because then you're getting the rest of the mise en scene showing the ground going past and that there's you know hands in the shot if they went in for a close you might well, have he, lost he, that he went in for a close shot and the hands holding as they release mm -hmm. it's a great explosion here too even though you know like you don't really get the plane exploding you just get something in there but that said great reveal this moment here when he walks up and you think it's jack stack i mean we've now established the beret the jacket. You know the silhouette of Look what Henry could do as an actor. He'd go to tears even then. So good. And then out of it comes. But that's the thing. Like We've now gone on this journey enough to know the difference between Dabney as Jack and now Dabney as the dad. It comes out looking dad. like Jack. And as he looks and looks, you realize it's his father. It is interesting, though, to look at this and say, like, just even as a kid, I would go, that doesn't look like that was shot outside. That looks like that was on a stage with a rear projection, just the yeah. lighting. One thing I always wanted to know, was there a different ending? No. Because it does end like that. Like, I mean, you don't need any meat on the bones. You don't need the, all the cops are pulling up and the no. police, I, you know, uh, tape is going across. The whole movie's about this moment. This moment here. Yeah. And what more do you need? Like, you don't need to wrap things up in any other form other than the father and son have connected again. He froze frame like I froze frame on uh, Child's Play yeah. at the end. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. There is there is Cloak and Dagger. When was the last time you watched that? Oh, God, it's been years. I remember when I first emailed you and you were like, really? <laughs> it's It's been a while. I think I might have to watch the movie yeah, before. it's been years and years since I've watched it. Do you feel like it's, you know, because I think every filmmaker goes through this when they have something that is, I mean, this is for all intents and purposes, even though it is, um, you know, based on certain video game themes and it's got certain things that can be considered, you know, commercial-esque, you know, it's still an original story that you came up with. How close do you feel this was to the original script that you wrote? Oh, 99%. When is, what? Oh, yeah, 90, Roll that back. I want to hear that again. No, no, serious. 99% or 99.9. So was, so was uh, uh, Psycho 2. What? Like, do you think that that was just because of the symbiosis that you had with... I mean, even if you guys, you and Richard, had such a synchronic relationship, there's still the studio, the producers, and, the, and everybody else involved that are going to get in the way of that. By the time that Richard came to directing, he didn't have the mental capacity 
to change anything. Mm. It had already been locked in concrete during the writing process. Do you think that that's now, that's a lost art form in terms of, like, because I know, and I've been on them too, where the script is not done. You know, they're, they're pushing it through prep, thinking, you know what, the, draft, the drafts will get done, because we don't want to, like, most production companies now will not initiate any fees or anything actually being done on a movie until six weeks before, and they'll, they won't even commission like script You're changes until then. You're only getting six weeks of prep? Nowadays, if you're lucky if you get six days, like six weeks of prep. Yeah, the usual now is six weeks of prep. So, there it is, Cloak and Dagger. Tom, thank you so much for doing this. Seriously, it was a pleasure to sit down with you. Again, this is our second commentary together. Uh, hopefully we can do another one. Uh, pick a movie and I'll come over anytime. And Fri Fatal Beauty. We are doing Fatal Beauty next. And coming back to you, Joe Lynch, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, your, anytime. Your, your knowledge is encyclopedic and you love film so much that it makes it a pleasure. Well, it's all your fault because you're the, you're the guy that made all the movies that made me want to do that. So, God so. bless and everybody out there who's listening. I hope you have as much fun as Joe and I did doing this. Thank you, guys.